good morning again, friends. We're going to continue our sermon series from Paul's letter to the Romans. So if you'd like to open up your Bible to Romans chapter 1. I want to welcome back Roman, back in the house, back from Poland, and brother Nalusha. Now you have to stand because Roman stood, you have to stand. Nalusha's back, although... Well, maybe he was already back, but I wasn't here when he was welcome back. But anyway, welcome back, guys. Good to see you. Romans chapter 1, please. If you'd like a, t- a title for today's message, it's The Wrath of God. And because we're in Australia, we say wrath. And we say wrath a lot. Americans say wrath, but we say wrath, like the British. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. But we will just focus our attention on verse 18 this morning. But I want to read... The whole passage. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, we have Bibles at the back of the church which you can have. If you don't have a Bible to take home with you, take that home with you. You can put your hand up now if you'd like a physical Bible to read along with. Otherwise, it shall be on the screen and I will read it for us. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 18 through to 25. 4. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So... They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you go onto the podcast, any podcast app, and look at the top 10 podcasts, you'll notice that nearly half of them are all true crime podcasts. Maybe you're guilty of being one of those people that add to the statistic, there seems to be an obsession that we have with following these true crime podcasts. Fictional crime isn't enough. We want true crime. We want to see what goes on in the world that's darkest and worst. We want to have an understanding of the psychology. How does someone get to a place where they commit a, a vicious act of murder and deception and And how does the human mind get there? I think there's something intrinsically interesting about it. We like to listen to it, though, from the safety of our headphones or watch a true crime thing on Netflix. We don't want to actually be involved in it. We would hate to actually be involved in the story in some way. But we want to know what goes on and why. 
And in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul is going to take us on a tour of human sin and depravity. And in this, he's going to really underline the psychology of human evil. And it's going to be, in a sense, like a true crime podcast because Paul is going to take us through Jew and Gentile, young and old, anyone and everyone on earth, and why they do the things that they do. And just like in a true crime podcast, we we want justice, we want the, the mystery to be solved, so too there's going to be justice and a mystery to be solved in this entire section. But the twist in the tale is that as we go through the next 10 weeks of sermons, we'll all be on these terrible chapters in the Bible. We're going to find that we're the ones being investigated. We're the ones being exposed. We're the ones being hunted down. And our friends and our family and everyone you know And perhaps instead of crying out for justice like we do when a great crime is being committed, when the spotlight is thrown on us, revealing our sin and our depravity, we're going to be desperately crying out for mercy in a whole new way. Paul could have simply given us one verse. He summarizes these chapters many times as he goes through. He could have just told us in chapter 3, verse 23, like he does, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But instead, Paul takes a really long time to explain to his readers, the Romans, just how guilty we all are. Everyone. No exclusion. And so rather than, we could preach, I could preach this in one sermon and give you a really clear structural outline, but I actually want us to do the uncomfortable and to dwell on this for a long time. It's going to be uncomfortable for me and, and us, but there'll also be glorious things in it. So I want to give you a couple of reasons why I want us to spend so long on what is so dark. Number one, by studying these chapters it will more dramatically reveal the beauty of the gospel. These chapters will make us plead all the more desperately for the truths that we saw last time of Romans 1, 16 to 17 and Romans 3, 21 to 26. The blacker the backdrop, the brighter the glory of the cross will shine through. Secondly, These chapters will lead some of you to realize that you personally need salvation. We can so quickly think that it's not me. I'm good. I've been been raised in a Christian home or I believe in some other religious tradition. I think I'll be okay. But my hope is that by steeping ourselves in these truths for a long time, some of you, even today, will be awakened unto your need for salvation in Christ. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we're going to be hopefully exposed to this great spiritual doctor who will diagnose our problem and then call some of us, I hope, in these next weeks to salvation. 
John Stott, in his commentary, says, Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him or their unwillingness to admit it. And so I encourage you, if you are not yet a Christian, keep exposing yourself to these truths and see, is this true? Do I really need Christ? Thirdly, these chapters, by studying them in depth, will intensify our urgency in mission and in prayer. It's all too easy to know in just that general sense that there is judgment and there is sin and those outside of Christ will not be saved. It will be another thing to spend 10 weeks thinking about that. And I hope that it will breed an, an uncomfortable but an urgency in us to tell the gospel to our friends and family and to desperately pray for global evangelization. Fourth, these chapters will expand our doctrine of God, especially his righteousness, holiness, wrath, and judgment. These are doctrines about God which we are prone to overlook, skirt by, they don't come up in culture only in really negative or caricature ways, but we want to preach in this church the whole counsel of Scripture, and I want us to see all the parts of the Bible which reveal all of God's glory, and God's wrath is one of his characteristics which reveals his glory. And so 10 weeks on this will help us to see God for who he truly is even more gloriously. And finally, I think these chapters will make us wiser. They'll make us wiser. We will more effectively understand the deep rootedness of our own sin and the sin of our world. It will protect us and protect others. We'll realize that there are no acceptable sins or just, oh, we do these things because of circumstance or family history. No, we will see that it's at the depth of our being. It will make us wiser because it'll help us to teach people the true cause. It'll help us to teach our children and our friends and our family why they do the things that they do. And it'll make us see that there are no band-aid solutions either. And again, the greatest act of wisdom is to take us back to the cross. And so it's my hope that as we study these, and they'll be interspersed with a few other messages, but these uncomfortable chapters will see the need for the gospel, our need for our salvation, need for urgency. Our doctrine of God will expand and will become wiser as a people. Today, we're going to focus just on one verse, verse 18. This verse really stands as the verse over the whole next couple of chapters. Paul, in 1, 16 and 17, he outlines his, his greatness of the gospel. Then in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is being revealed. And then really from verse 19 to chapter 3, verse 20, is a parenthetical argument where he proves his case, that the wrath of God is revealed and this is how it's revealed. So I want to spend our morning just on verse 18 to state the case. And then over the next nine weeks after that, we'll go and prove the case and see it in detail because that was Paul's intention and God's intention. And so we're going to investigate this one verse. I want to read it for us again. Romans 1:18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
We're going to ask three questions of this passage today to help understand it more fully. Firstly, what is the wrath of God? Secondly, how is the wrath of God revealed? And thirdly, who will experience the wrath of God? And my hope is that we humbly revere God in his wrath at the end of today. So let's look at point number one. What is this wrath of God that I keep mentioning? Well, you've got to look at the text. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, for. He's giving a logical connection from what came previously. There's, there's a lot of words which are repeated between verse 16 and 17 and in verse 18. So this is not just a new topic that Paul is introducing. This is intrinsically linked to the greatness of the gospel that he talked about in 16 and 17. You look, you see the wrath of God is revealed. We saw in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. This continual talk about unrighteousness, well, he talked about righteousness a lot. And that word for, it links them both together. So let's look at verse 16, 17, and 18, and kind of trace out the argument and just see how it's all interrelated. Paul says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And we might ask, why aren't you ashamed of the gospel, Paul? Well, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, how, how is it powered for salvation? Well, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul there is saying that we are made righteous by God. That's how salvation happens, by putting our faith in Christ but then we ask the question, but why is this necessary? Why do we need salvation? Why do we need the righteousness of God? What's the big deal? Why are you so passionate about it? We learned that Paul's going to travel all the way down from Jerusalem up to Rome and up to Spain to preach the gospel. Why? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I trust you see the obvious link. Unless God is angry at our sin, we don't need the gospel. Unless God has wrath, unless there's judgment, unless we need saving from this God, unless there is a hell, we don't need the glorious gospel. And that's why so many people have no concern at all for what we prize so dearly. Sadly, for untold millions of Australians, perhaps some of you here this morning, you have no conception of the God of wrath. Even you may call yourself a Christian this morning. No conception that God is a God of wrath. So what is that wrath that Paul is so desperate for his people to understand? Well, firstly, we've got to define what it isn't. God's wrath is not like human wrath. It's not ill-tempered, flying off the handle, the wrath of a dictator who indiscriminately blows things up without concern for guilty or innocent. God's wrath also, on the other end of the scale, is not some impersonal force like you know, just logical people do bad things, bad things happen to them, but he's not involved in it. God's wrath is a part of his character. 
The commentator John Murray says it well. He says, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. So wrath is God's revulsion. His whole being, God himself, the holy God, hates all that is unholy. Christopher Ash says, The wrath of God means his hot, settled, just, personal fury against sinners. Hot, settled, just, personal fury against sinners. That's the wrath of God. That's what we're talking about. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Sometimes we hear that there's, you know, an Old Testament God of wrath and the New Testament is the God of love, but that's not the case. There's one God across Old and New Testament who is always a God of love and always a God of wrath. But why is this God so angry? Well, the verse tells us. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. So it's a righteous, holy, eternal, omnipotent wrath against what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Namely, or most supremely, that in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. That is, they suppress the knowledge of knowing who God really is. We're going to spend all of next week looking at verses 19 to 23, where Paul explains what it means to suppress the truth. But in short, what he's saying there is that everyone has a sense of that there is a God, but they bury it deep down. And instead of honoring and thanking him, they worship themselves, they worship creation, they set up some other system, anything they can to not deal with God himself directly. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And he's not talking about Jews there. In this section, he's talking about Gentiles. That we know God through creation. We know him through looking at the sun, the moon, the stars. And yet people run from him and don't thank him, don't revere him, don't love him, don't worship him. And therefore God is personally furious against those people. How does that land on you? Could you look someone in the eye and say, I believe that God is furiously angry with anyone who does not bow the knee to Jesus? Would you be confident, courageous, not gleeful, but determined to be able to say such a truth? You see, friends, as believers in Christ, we too are called to be ministers of him. We're all called to be spiritual doctors to our friends and families, providing the right diagnoses for people's problems so that we can prescribe the right medicine. And this is a bitter diagnosis, that God is angry against all sinners. And the medicine, though, is sweeter than all. But it's the solemn truth of the text, everywhere repeated in the Bible. God hates unrighteousness, and he will punish it most severely. And he will not squirm, and he will not relent, like we may. Ezekiel 8.18 
even speaking of his wrath against his people that have forsaken the covenant, he says, Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So how is this wrath revealed? This text says the wrath of God is revealed. We've understood what the wrath is. How is it revealed? That's the second question. Point two, how is the wrath of God revealed? Generally, you probably think of God's wrath being revealed on Judgment Day, the last day. And that is true. But that's not what Paul says in our text. Verse 18, look at it again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is, present tense, revealed. The wrath of God will be revealed. But Paul is saying right now the wrath of God is revealed in Australia in 2023. September 10, 11.04. How is this so? How is God's wrath revealed right now? Well, in Romans, there's actually quite a few answers we could give. I'm just going to give you three of about five. Firstly, God's wrath is revealed right now in death. God's wrath is revealed every second of the day as human beings die all over the planet. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, talks about Adam's sin and says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death Through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That death is later called God's condemnation. Death is condemnation. It was never meant to be death for humans in this world. But when man sinned against God, the just judgment is that they shall die. And we are all guilty, and therefore everyone at some point will die. And every time someone dies, God's wrath against sin is on display. Death is not natural. It doesn't just happen. Death is not good. Death is a condemnation. And Hebrews tells us that Everyone is appointed a time to die. There are no accidents. For the believer, by God's grace, the curse of death, the condemnation, the sting of death is removed. But for all outside of Christ, every death, sadly, the wrath of God is revealed. Secondly, Paul tells us another way that God's wrath is revealed is in the futility of life. If you skip over to Romans 8, you'll see in verse 18 to 22 these verses. Paul looks on and says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For The creation, which we're included, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation, when sin came into the world, was subjected to futility. God cursed the earth. That's why weeds and thorns and thistles grow. That's why pregnancy is painful and sometimes ends in death. That's why every part of our life is caught up in a futility. Have you noticed that life doesn't just work out? There's a futility. You save, you, like my grandfather, saved, worked hard every day, left the house 5 a.m., came home 5 p.m., Every day, 40 years of work, saved his money so he could tour the world, goes legally blind just before his retirement, can't go anywhere. There's a futility. God's wrath is revealed in the futility of life. You stub your toe, crops fail, floods decimate. You could be like... One of my favorite NRL players, Paul Ryan Pappenhausen. You spend 400 days on the sideline and in your third game back, you snap your ankle for another six months on the sideline. God's wrath is revealed in the futility of life. If there wasn't sin, that wouldn't happen. It's not that we have to say, because he did this, therefore that happened. No, in the everyday of life, this world is subjected to futility. And one day, that verse tells us, that will be gone. There'll only be ankles that work and eyes that see and crops that bear fruit. But until then, all the wickedness and darkness and corruption and brokenness is God's wrath being revealed. It's God who subjects it to it. But most clearly in Paul's mind, the third way that Romans tells us about God's wrath being revealed right now is depravity. God's wrath is revealed real time in the depth and width of human depravity and sin. This is Paul's clear point in verse 24, 26, 28, that whole section. So firstly, in verse 18 to 23, he states his case. God is angry with the world because of their sin. And how does he display his anger? Verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passengers, passion, passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And in those sections, he details every sin under earth, sexual sin, disobeying parents, slander, gossip, jealousy, all the sin that goes on in society is God's wrath being revealed. When we suppress the truth that God is good and righteous and love him, what ends up happening is God, in real time, judges humanity by allowing them to do what they want to do. God's mercy would be to help us relent. God's mercy would be to say, in our conscience, oh, don't do it. No, that's wrong. God hates that. But instead, God's wrath is revealed when we give ourselves into sin. If 
from the big to the small. It's horrible. We long for the day when it's fully paid for. But until then, God's wrath is revealed in every act of wickedness on earth. That God allowed that to happen and gave that person over to it. But there is, of course, God's wrath will be revealed, even though that's not the point of this passage. It will be revealed. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul picks up on that in final judgment. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day, when, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So one day... The wrath of God will be finally revealed. The day when God's judgment will be handed out. And anyone who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation will be charged guilty before God. And all the wrath that God hasn't poured out upon them in this life through futility and suffering and their death will be poured out upon them forever over eternity. Jonathan Edwards wrote a famous sermon in the middle of a great awakening, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This is in New England, in America, 1750s. I read it again this week because I remember reading it when I was 16, 17 and being floored by it because of how it depicts the wrath of God in language that we're so uncomfortable. And I wanted to read some of it just to show the imagery so that we are not ignorant of what this wrath actually will be. Jonathan Edwards said this, the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present, that is, built up, damned. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand it or endure it. Our sins and the sins of anyone outside of Christ are stored. And we think, oh, God isn't a God of judgment. No, he's storing up his judgment. And like a great dam... It's building and building and building. And the only thing that holds back the dam 
And the flood of God's wrath is his sovereign pleasure. The only reason now, if you're a sinner outside of Christ, that you aren't experiencing the eternal wrath of God is God's sovereign pleasure to keep you alive. But one day, he will release the floodgate and you'll be swept up in eternal wrath. And it will be like, you can't conceive it. We can't imagine it. It's inconceivable. God's holy hatred for sin and the infinite worth of God that deserves an infinite punishment. And so God's wrath is revealed now in death, in futility, in depravity, and will be revealed on judgment day. Thirdly, who will experience the wrath of God? For the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. As we've said from chapter 1, 19 through to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to make a case for comprehensive guilt, that all are sinners, all have fallen short, and all are experiencing now the wrath of God and will one day experience it in judgment and he's going to leave no stone unturned verse 19 to 32 he will show that pagans those who do not know God's law they are worthy of God's wrath in verses 1 to 16 of chapter 2 he'll say even moralistic people Jews or God-fearing Gentiles they will receive God's wrath in verses 17 to chapter 3 verse 8 he will say even God's people Jews who do not trust in Christ they too will experience God's wrath and then in chapter 9 verse 20 in case we didn't get the point he will show that everyone on earth who is outside of Christ will receive God's wrath and is now receiving it He wants to demonstrate equality. There is an equality in Paul's language here. But it's not the equality that we celebrate in our country, that is demanded in our country, an equality that says basically we're all really nice and everyone deserves a fair go. And I I applaud people's virtue that they want equality because it's terrible to treat people unfairly and differentiate and be unkind to people but here Paul is saying that we are all equally sinful and deserve condemnation but he goes to the depth of our equality of sinfulness so that he can demonstrate the most glorious reality that there is equality in condemnation but also equality in salvation that salvation is available for all, any and all. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles also. He's not just being negative for negative sake. He wants to show our equal need for judgment so that no one is complacent, no one is resting on their past good works, that no one is thinking, well, maybe if I believe in multiple religions, one of them will be right. Or maybe if I do good deeds or I come to church enough, or maybe if I get a blessing from a priest, or maybe if I am married to someone who's a Christian, or maybe if my parents believe in Christ, maybe some way I can be saved. He wants to say, no, there is no one righteous, no one is good, no one will stand, so that he can say, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power 
of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the message of Jesus Christ that he lived a perfect life, that he died in our place on the cross, that he was buried for our sins, that he rose again from the grave to vindicate who he was, that he's ascended into heaven, that he'll one day return. In that message, anyone who believes in that message, you receive the righteousness of God to replace your unrighteousness. Your unrighteousness is wiped out, never to be remembered, and you are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, credited to your account. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you've spent your whole life worshipping Allah or Vishnu or Shiva or some other invented God, you can have full and free pardon today in Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's radical equality in this church. There's no uppers and lowers. There's no higher. There's no better. We are all equally sinful and we're all equally righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ. There is no place in Romans where the wrath of God is more accurately revealed than on the cross of Christ. That's the ultimate place where God's wrath is revealed because you see the holy son of God bear the holy wrath of God so that the unholy children, soon to be children of God, would be welcomed in. Although uncomfortable, studying the wrath of God ought to change us, affect us, and should more dramatically help us to revel in the beauty of the gospel. Do you have that sense even now? You should. I hope you do. I pray you do right now that you would, if you are in Christ, sense the relief. This was you. Ephesians 2. You were a child of wrath. God's wrath was going to be poured out upon you. But in his mercy, he turned your heart to believe in him. And so instead of the waters of wrath, you went under the waters of baptism, signifying your cleansing and your unification with death with Christ and life with Christ. You should revel all the more in the beauty of the gospel against the backdrop of your sin and God's wrath. Secondly, this should intensify our urgency in mission and prayer. I found it very difficult to study these passages because... You just walk out and you see a car drive by and a bus drive by. And, and I, was at, you know, I was at Penrith Stadium watching the footy yesterday and there's 21,535 people there. And you think, how many of them, how many will be under the righteous wrath of God one day? We ought to pray desperately for our, the, the hordes and the people living in the homes next to us, that God would have mercy. And we ought to go. We have to tell them that there is a way out. There's safety in Christ. And perhaps for some of you right now, you've realized you need salvation. You've sinned. You're not godly. You're not righteous. And God's wrath is going to be upon you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone today, and you will be spared. More than that, you'll be loved. 
More than that, you'll be adopted. More than that, you'll be welcomed into God's presence forever if you do that right this very moment. So friends, what is the wrath of God? Well, it's the holy revulsion of God's being against that, which is the contradiction of his holiness. How is the wrath of God revealed? In death, in futility, in human depravity, and ultimately on judgment day. And who will experience the wrath of God? Anyone. Anyone. Anywhere in the world who does not or has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So friends, let us revere our God and humble ourselves before him. Let's revel in his mercy and love and revere his wrath, for that is who our God is. Let us pray together. Almighty God, Heavenly God, righteous God, we thank you that you hate sin. That heaven will be a place where all sin is cast out and you will have no tolerance for sin. We long for the day when you make all things right. We long for the day when all the futility and all the death is swallowed up. We long for the day when the untold numbers of people who've been abused and hurt will see vengeance. There'll be vindication. But we're awed, O oh Lord, in the presence of your word, which tells us that we deserve that wrath. And we thank you. Oh, we thank you for Christ, our Savior. We thank you that he bore it all on, on the cross. He drank the cup, the bitter cup, to the dregs. <laughs> And he staggered. And your wrath fell upon him heavy. You hated him. So that you could love us. Because you loved us. And so Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to revel in that beauty. To be urgent in our mission. Would you raise up missionaries to Parramatta and to the world, even now? Would you empower us to get off our phones and off our seats and out? Help me, O oh Lord, to proclaim the gospel. And for any here who aren't yet in Christ, I ask that in your mercy, you would send your divine light to break open the darkness of their heart right now and convert them, O oh Lord, that they would be saved from your wrath which they deserve. And we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And in his name we pray. Amen.